Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. Recorded live. <laughs> I was forget he's going to say that. Hi, everyone. It's Janet Dalglish here. Um, I'm so glad that you're joining me today for this um, for this teleclass about how to use the law of attraction to help soothe physical pain. Now, just before I dive into the material, um, thank you for Sandy and David for joining me on the line, and uh, I'm sure that other people may arrive. If we get any background noise, I'll, I'll mute you guys, but otherwise, I'm going to leave the lines open, so... Um, if you have questions, if I talk too fast or you can't understand my accent, please feel free to just jump in and go, what did you say? <laughs> or ask questions as we go. Um, and, uh, and we'll just, uh, and I'll and also open up for questions at the end. Um, for anybody who's listening to the recording who is new to my work, let me do a very quick introduction. Um, I am a certified law of attraction coach and I'm obsessed by brain science. My passion is to wreak more joy in the world in whatever way I can. My business name is Identity Shift Ninja because I'm all about shifting on the inside in order to allow uh, the exterior things of our world to, to, to change. And, in, and included in that is our relationship with our bodies. So why do I want to talk about pain today? Because physical pain can feel like a barrier to joy. Um, and the reason I want to talk about using law of attraction in relation to pain is because that's, to be honest, that was a tricky area for me myself and I found my way through. So what I'm sharing today, I'm hoping that it will help with you, for you guys as well. Um, if you're new to the law of attraction, I've, I've, I use the abbreviation LOA, so um, just so you know. Um, so let me do a very quick recap. Uh, law of attraction says that everything is energy and that like attracts like. That means wherever we put our focus, that's what we get more of. So if we put our focus on scarcity, for example, we get more scarcity. If we put our focus on abundance, we get more abundance. And we can tell where we are focused um, from our, it basically the way that we know where we are focused is by how it feels. If it feels good, we're focused towards what we want. If it feels bad when we think about a topic, we're focused away from that, away from that thing we want. Um, and in Law of Attraction world, we talk about our vibration, which is like a mix of our thoughts and feelings. Law of Attraction is super simple. It's working all the time, but it can feel really complicated to use it deliberately in order to create what we want. So for example, with pain, if I'm in pain, how can I use Law of Attraction to soothe that pain? If I try and ignore pain and focus on being pain-free, it's kind of difficult because focusing on the absence of something uh, is, is pretty tricky. When we are free of pain, we just don't notice it. We, it it's, it's just a thing. We, it, we sort of noodle along in life and don't really notice and appreciate it. It's ephemeral. Um, it's wispy. It's hard to get hold of. And sometimes trying to focus on feeling well or, feel, or, or well-being or feeling healthy, well, from my experience, that can actually end up feeling like I'm clenching my teeth, concentrating on something that is completely unavailable to me. And that does nothing to soothe my pain. My other option is to, to look at the pain and kind of really sit with it and visit with it and surrender to it, let it have its way with me. 
and that pulls all my attention towards it and that doesn't feel great either. So the, my solution to this conundrum came when I began to understand more about the mechanics of pain, how it actually works and what it's for. So that's what I want to share with you today. We, I want to take a dive into the mechanics of pain and then use that, we'll use that as our platform for, to launch how we manage our own, pain, our own experience of pain. So as we move through this material, do please feel free to interrupt me if you have questions or if I talk too fast. I get, I get a bit excited about this stuff. And of course, um, if you guys listening to this, you know I'm not a doctor. I'll do my best to answer questions, but if things get really highly technical, I may have to take questions on notice and get back to you. Um, obviously, if you are currently experiencing pain and you're not sure what it is, please get it checked out. Uh, and if you are under the care of a health professional, please bear in mind that it's possible some of what you learn today may be new to them because some of this is pretty leading edge stuff and it may be radically different from how they were trained. That I will provide links to some resources that you may want to explore fully, which are more about the, 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 the mechanics of pain and some new ways that are being used to manage pain. Um, and do feel free to discuss those with your medical team, but please don't begin that conversation by making them wrong about something. As I said, this is leading edge stuff and they may simply not yet, not yet be aware of it. And finally, I will be providing some PDF notes to accompany this class, as well as a guided visualization that you can use at home to proactively work with this material. And all of those will be available within the next 48 hours um, and the links will go out to everyone who's registered. So let me begin with telling a little of my own story because I think this sets some context to, to, and it also gives me a really good example of what I'm going to be teaching and have my own journey with it. So specifically, I want to talk about a workplace injury that occurred back in 2009. Um, like all my colleagues across the organisation that employed me, I was given a specific directive to get a particular task completed. I think the expression used was heads will roll <laughs> if this doesn't get done. But unlike my colleagues, I, I worked on my own in, a, in an autonomous office in a, um, a branch of the organisation in a small country town. Uh, I did have volunteers who could have assisted me, but they weren't available. So I didn't have any assistance to do my part of it. So I took the work home to do over the weekend. This is pretty normal for me in that particular job. I spent several hours over the course of two days inserting 7,000 flyers into 7,000 folded newsletters. And honestly, I sat in front of the TV and did it. Didn't seem like a big deal, but it was. It triggered a tendon injury which became chronic and, it was, and that injury was exacerbated by keyboarding, which, which apparently with this particular injury, it was tennis elbow. Uh, keyboarding is not normally a trigger for that, but for me it is, just because of the way my arm is constructed, the relationship between bone, muscle and tendon. So over the next several months, I was treated with acupuncture, which didn't work, cortisone injections, which didn't work. I went to my hand therapist, who was the best thing, the best person for me to be working with, but the therapy would work and then I would go back to work and it would be triggered again. I had something called an autologous blood injection, which is just as much fun as it sounds, not. Uh, and finally, I had surgery. The surgery worked. The damaged tissue, which had been injured over and over again, was finally removed altogether. In fact, my surgeon made a point of telling me, but just before I went under, uh, of saying to me, your elbow damage will be gone today completely, which felt fantastic, I have to tell you. All of the post-op signs were really good. I had great movement. You know, I was doing very gentle post-op movement. I had very little pain. And I had really fast healing of the operation site itself over the following two weeks. And that felt so good. 
and then I went back to my job. Within two hours of walking through the door, the surgery site had swollen and turned red and hot and I was in agony. So I closed up the office, went back to my GP, got an emergency appointment with my doctor. He immediately sent me home. The pain, which had returned so spectacularly, stayed around for months and months and months and I never went back to work again. So that's where I was at when I really began to investigate what I'm teaching today. Uh, I had a lot of stuff going on about, you know, not ever being able to work again and you can imagine how... Um, how the influence it had on my mood. Um, and as a, as a writer, the notion of not being able to keyboard, I, I tried using voice recognition software and speaking words works differently in my brain from, from typing them, from writing them, the act of writing. So other than handwriting, I was pretty limited in what I could do in terms of the way I expressed myself. So it was a pretty bad time. Um, but thankfully, I had some workers' compensation insurance for a few months so I sat at home and tried to come to terms with being in pain 24-7, with being reliant on painkillers and anti-inflammatories and trying to figure out what to do next. But luckily for me, my hand therapist introduced me to the new research on pain. And when I blended that with the law of attraction, everything began to change. So I know what I'm talking about from personal experience. And I'm obviously not saying that I can guarantee your results, of course. But I can guarantee that if anything you hear today is new to you, or if you use and if you use that new information to create a different relationship with your own pain, then you will get benefits. Pain is never a simple situation, and of course, there's way more than I can cover in this 90-minute call. So that's why I'm going to include some links to further reading and other more physiology-based resources, um, so that you can explore those at your leisure. Um, so. The, the very fact that I know I have the power to change my brain and to therefore change my relationship with pain, that's what helped me shift my identity from victim of pain to a girl who rocks her ability to man manage pain. That doesn't mean I never experience pain. I still do. But it's a very, very different experience. So let's begin with some ideas about what pain actually is. Um, if you're familiar with the work of Louise Hayes and others, sorry, Louise Hay and others, you'll know that pain is often, some might say always, the physical manifestation of some unresolved emotional pain. And that may well be true, but we're not really looking at that today. You'll find many teachers around who work in those areas of mind, body, emotion, spiritual kind of healing. Um, so what I want to really look at today is the, the physiological mechanisms of pain because that gives us leverage and the first thing to know is pain does not actually happen in the body. It certainly feels as though it's in the body because that's how the system is designed to work. But whether it's the fierce sting of a paper cut or the agony of a broken leg or the acute chest pain of a heart attack, it's all happening in your brain. That does not mean you're making it up, by the way. It's simply how the physiology works. We used to think that the body had pain sensors, but it turns out that this is not true. We don't have pain sensors in our body. There's no such thing. Our body has sensors for danger, and these sense changes to our tissues. When something changes in our body, those danger sensors send out a warning signal, like a little alarm. That alarm signal goes through a series of staging posts along our nervous system on their way to the brain, and at each stage, the danger is reassessed. If it seems serious enough, the signal gets all the way to the brain. So we get these, we get these signals, these danger signals that are saying, 
oh, warning, there's something changed here. We get those happening all the time and many, many, many of them never make it to the brain because the nervous system itself will assess them as being non-threatening. It's, so it's in the brain that the really smart stuff begins to happen. So I should have asked, sort of stopped every so often to say, is this all making sense? Do feel free to interrupt me if it's not. Okay, I'm taking sense. that. Sorry, what were you saying? That it, it's making sense. It does make awesome. sense. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes I kind of think, oh, they're so quiet. <laughs> maybe, I've, maybe I've lost them. <laughs> Hopefully it's just that you're intrigued. Um, so yes, the alarm system goes through these staging posts and it's in the brain that the really smart stuff happens. This is, this is where the brain makes a decision about whether the risk is serious enough. So it decides two things. First of it decides if the risk is serious and it decides if there is some action to be taken. And when there is, when both of those things are true, it delivers the experience of pain. It, ex it also kicks into action a whole cascade of other things. So it, it will trigger ideas for how to get help, floods of chemical changes, instant mobilization of white cells to fight infection, and so on, all of the healing responses. It also amps up the sensitivity of those initial danger sensors so that we will instinctively protect that changed area. So if you've ever cut your finger, you know how... To begin with, you, you, you can't bear for that, that cut area to be touched. It's really hypersensitive. And then over the following days, as it heals, that sensitivity diminishes so that you might get to the point where it hurts if you bump it. So you, you're sort of still a bit protective, but it's okay to touch. Um, and, then, and it hurts less overall. Before long, the cut has healed and your danger sensors have gone back to normal. So the danger and pain system, it's a two-way communication between the danger sensors around the, around the affected area and your brain. And it adjusts as our bodies heal if it's something from which our bodies are healing, like a cut or a broken leg. It's also true that sometimes those systems can alter and we get chronic pain. That's what happened to me where I had an injury that by all accounts should have healed in a certain time frame and didn't. Or actually, that's not true. The injury did heal, but I still had pain. So it's another different phenomenon again. Um, and it's what got me so interested in all of this stuff. But regardless of what the actual situation is in the body, the pain systems work the same way. So what's pain for? It's purely there to protect us. It's actually an act of self-love on the part of our bodies and our brains. Pain does two key things. It makes us take action to fix whatever has changed if we can. So putting a Band-Aid on a cut or getting a checkup for the chest pain. And it makes us protect the site of their change where there's an injury or an illness or a degeneration so that the body can do the work of healing or managing that more easily. So when we protect those areas, the, the, the healing occurs more easily. So imagine if you have a broken leg and you decide to walk on it. If, you, if, you pray, if your brain wasn't assessing risk and then giving you pain, you would likely make the break much worse and you probably wouldn't even bother to go and get it fixed. And we know that people in heavily crisis situations like soldiers under fire can do exactly that. Their brain delivers the, delays the pain response while it gets them to safety because it weighs up the comparative risk of staying in the open against the risk of moving on a shattered thigh bone. So there have been many, many stories of soldiers under fire who don't experience the pain of a bullet wound until they're under cover. And it's because their brains are saying, 
that there's more danger in staying out here in the open than there will be if if I let him walk on it. So I'm or he, or her walk on it. So I'm going to get them undercover, and then the next danger is the danger of this um, injury that now needs to be taken care of. So the pain experience is managed by the brain according to the danger it perceives. Your pain is unique to you. This is a, another key factor. Your pain is unique to you. It is nothing like anybody else's pain, including your spouse, your kids, your treating doctors, your best friend, or the people in the support group that you talk with. Your pain response is partially learned. Um, if you've ever seen a toddler tumble over while learning to walk, um, there's this moment when they're little, there's this, they go through this period of time, we all did it, there's a, they go through this period where they, when they take a tumble or they bump their heads, they look to the adults to kind of, to almost as an inquiry of how they should respond. So we've all seen it happen. If, a, if the adults around treat the tumble as a sort of regular part of life and you know, obviously they make sure that there's no blood, no serious injury, but if there's that just that tumble over and the adults kind of almost laugh it off, not in an unkind way, but in a, oh, look what happened kind of way, if they respond to it with that light, um, that light energy, the toddler will literally pick herself up and carry on. It's like, oh, that just happened. But, and that's not the toddler putting on a brave face. They're not sort of masking pain. They're literally not, not, not getting a significant um, outcome, pain outcome, because their brain has learned that they're safe. But when the adults around them respond with alarm or they proactively act to soothe any anticipated pain, the toddler will cry. He's not putting on an act and he's not making a big drama out of it in a conscious way. His brain is literally learning that falling over is scary and risky and his brain may well amp up the pain response he experiences as a result of that. Um, I, I've observed this with my own family where um, different women within my family have had very different responses to their own children at that phase, one was very was almost cavalier about it, and her kids are very robust about pain and all those kinds of things. Not in the sense of covering it up, but more in the sense of going, "Oh, that hurt. Oh well, I'll get over it." Whereas the other one um, was very protective, very um, uh, would heighten her own child's sense of alarm, and his his children are much more sensitive to the the rough and tumble of life. Um, those pain responses have been learned very early on because when the brain believes there is danger, it's more likely to deliver pain. And the higher its sense of risk, the more pain it will deliver. This is why when we look back at my story, when I walked back into my office, which is the place where I had experienced so much pain over so many months of trying to manage a workload while carrying an injury, my brain's alarm bells went off big time. And I found out later that this is borne out by the research. People who suffer workplace injuries, especially if that injury has not been taken seriously by management or, or if the return to work is badly handled, which mine was, those people will experience not just pain, but swelling and inflammation just from walking back into that workplace. There's a physiological response because the brain, my brain had learned that that workplace was a dangerous place for me to be, specifically in relationship to that injury. It had learned to associate that particular workplace with physical pain, swelling and, and uh, all of the signs of, um, of injury, of acute injury in my elbow. 
Um, and in fact, we even know that those physiological responses of pain and swelling can be triggered by merely thinking about returning to the to the workplace where the injury occurred. This is hardcore brain science research. This is not kind of some. This is not some. This is not some sort of. Uh, oh, they're just making it up. They're just confabulating. There's a, there is a literal connection between the site where an injury occurred and the brain's uh, sense of danger, triggering that that immediate acute physiological response at the injury site. This is pretty. This is pretty amazing stuff. Um, any questions so far? Making sense? You're good to go. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks for keeping me on track. Okay, the next piece I want to talk about is about the 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 um the fact that pain we now know pain is not necessarily related to the amount of damage, and this feels deeply, deeply counterintuitive. But again, the research is pretty clear. So. One of the easiest ways to understand this is to think about phantom pain, which is the pain that ha occurs in a missing portion of the body um, that, that ex is experienced by amputees. Um, for a very long time, researchers thought that phantom pain was simply something to do with nerve damage at the time of amputation. We now know that that's not true. We now know because we can do um, we can do much uh, more complex um, scans of the body of people as they are experiencing phantom pain. And we know that it is happening purely in the brain. So sufferers of phantom pain clearly describe feelings like the itch on a toe that isn't there. And if you've ever had an itch which you literally cannot scratch, you know how agonizing that can be. Um, they describe the pain of having a permanently clenched fist. You know, if you clench your fist for any length of time, it begins to hurt. So if, they, if they've got the, if they're, if they have the sensation of a clenched fist, but the fist is no longer there, so they can't actually open it and release that tension, that's, that can be agonizing. Um, but there are other occasions where we can see this clearly pl played out because if we go back to how we know the brain works in relation to pain, we know that the brain, when it, when it assesses risk, it delivers the pain response as a mechanism to protect us. So there's a favourite story of mine which illustrates this brilliantly. Uh, this comes from the British Medical Journal in 1995 and I'm just going to quote it in, in its entirety because I think it's so cool. A builder aged 29 came to the accident and emergency department having jumped down onto a 15 centimetre, that's 6 inch nail. As the smallest movement of the nail was painful, he was sedated with fentanyl and midazolam. The nail was then pulled out from below. When his boot was removed, a miraculous cure appeared to have taken place. Despite, enter despite entering right next to the steel toe cap, the nail had actually penetrated between the toes. The foot was entirely uninjured. So in other words, that builder's brain looked at the input that it had. It looked at the event, jumping down onto a nail, and it's... And, and it's you know, it's, it, it used its previous experience of how dangerous a building site is and similar events that might happen. And it looked at the visual input of a nail going all the way through his boot um, and presumably from his, through his foot. And it made a very reasonable assessment that his foot was in danger. So even though the danger sensors in his tissues hadn't been activated, his brain still created this sensation of agony to the point where he had to be sedated with significant painkillers 
um, and because it believed that he was that he was injured and that an action needed to happen. It delivered that pain experience in highly convincing ways, and it even responded to pain to those painkillers and sedation, as though the injury were genuine, which enabled the doctors to to then treat him. In other words, that's the action that needed to happen. So now in this instance, his brain literally made up that pain based on no injury whatsoever. Obviously, in most cases, physical pain begins with an actual change in our tissues, an injury, an illness. But it turns out that there is a big hairy myth at play here. It turns out that the severity of pain we feel is not necessarily related to the amount of damage we suffer. Now, I... I know that when when I first learnt this, there was a big part of me that kind of went, are you telling me I'm making up my pain? This pain is real. I can tell you it's real. And I want to say that, that the fact that the pain is not related to the, to the degree of damage has nothing to do with whether the pain is real or not. Of course, the pain is real. But it's related to, the, to, to our brain's assessment of risk rather than it's the, 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 the level of damage involved. We know, for example, that there have been many, 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 many hundreds of thousands of reported cases of people who, after death, have gone through an autopsy of one, for one reason or another and that they've been discovered to have very significant degenerative bone or joint um, damage, which they have never reported during their lifetime. Uh, it's as though the brain has said that particular damage doesn't, it's not posing a threat, so we won't deliver the pain experience. And they have had no idea of it. Their families have never heard about it. Their doctors have never heard about it. They've never reported it. Now, yes, some of those may just be very stoic people who don't talk about it to anybody, but it doesn't explain the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of these cases. And equally, I had this very, very tiny injury that my brain delivered to me as a significant pain it led to me ending a career in a particular line of work. And this is almost the reverse of what most of us have been raised to expect. We imagine that a major injury is going to hurt more than a minor injury. But seriously, if you've ever had a paper cut, you know that's not necessarily the case. But think about how we perceive, how we are presented with the relationship between injury and pain all the time in the movies, every time or on a TV shows. Every time we see um, a, a particularly horrific kind of injury, it's depicted as though it is extremely painful. Um, and yet, for example, surfers who have had their legs bitten off by a shark will report that the initial sensation felt like a bump. There's just a kind of thump. It's not until they see the blood and they realize what's happened and their brain understands what's happened that the pain becomes enormous and triggers them to seek help. So this is all very interesting, but what does it have to do with the law of attraction? Well, I said that I would talk through the mechanics of how pain works and some of the things that are radically different from how most of us were raised and how most of our treating professionals were initially trained. Now, there is this stuff is, is getting to the mainstream now and there are a lot of health practitioners who are hearing it at, you know, training seminars. Obviously, my own hand therapist was aware of it. She happens to be married to an anaesthetist, an anaesthesiologist. So she was already interested in the whole field of pain management. Um, but there are still a lot of pain, uh, a lot of practitioners out there whose ideas about pain, as well as our own ideas, come from this very different model, this very different model that says, 
the severity of pain is, is related to the amount of damage. So um, what does it have to do with the law of attraction? But before I go into that, into, the, into that, can I just double check that we're all kind of on board with this, I, these, these new ideas about pain? Sandy, how's that landing for you? Um, I, I, I get, you know, I guess in my own studies, I'm, I'm aware of, you know, I'm aware of these things too. Good. So Excellent. this is not, you know, so this is not new. Excellent. Good, good, good. And have you found any of that information helpful in terms of managing your own pain? Well, certainly, certainly. When I get into like a pain flare, it becomes a cycle. Right. And I may actually not wake up in pain, but I, since I expect to be in it, my body will rise to the ex, you know to that expectation. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And it, you exactly. know, and it might take me a while. It might take me you know an hour to go. Wait. No, I'm okay. I I don't. Yeah. Have, no, wait. No, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And a lot of this is to do with this sort of. Um, the the um the way that pain is designed is that a lot of the time the 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 you know when i talked about how that that two way communication about how um you know our brain uh, am, amplifies the sensitivity around an injury in order for 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 us to to guard it and protect it and sort of make sure it's not getting further damaged. So there is a kind of logic behind the concept that the pain relates to the severity of damage and and actually understanding that these these sort of unpicking that and teasing the threads apart is I think where we begin to get our we begin to reclaim our power. So let's have a look at what this has to do with the law of attraction. Um, if you remember from the beginning, for those of you who are familiar with this, and I know most of you who are on the line at the moment are very familiar with this um, with this concept, um, uh, law of attraction is, or, or our capacity to use it to deliberately create what we want, is firmly tied to our thoughts and beliefs. So, um, one of the questions is, if the brain delivers pain when it senses risk, the obvious question becomes, how does the brain make that risk assessment? And this is where I think we start to start to understand our own power to manage pain. Our, our brain uses a variety of different stimuli. So it uses physical input from the nervous system, which serves the injured area or the, 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 the affected area. Um, but with our builder friend, going back to the story of our builder friend, the, the source was not his um, inbuilt danger sensing system. There were no changes to the tissues of his foot. There was no physical input directly from that area the sources that of input were his own expectation that a nail through his boot would mean an excruciating injury, his idea of what that would be. I mean, I, I could feel my toes curling in empathy as I imagine what it might feel like to have a six-inch nail through my foot. There's no doubt that the, the, the idea of it itself can trigger a kind of ouch response. Um, he also had the very powerful visual input of seeing that nail go through his foot or seeing that nail sticking out of his boot even though, as we know, there was no actual physical injury because it had gone between his toes. So not surprisingly to us deliberate creators, those of us familiar with law of attraction, our brain also uses our thoughts and beliefs. In fact, the role of our thoughts and beliefs is so crucial, pain researchers have used the term thought viruses 
to describe a thought process which is powerful enough to maintain a pain state even after an injury has healed or an illness has been resolved. So this is what happened to me. I had a thought virus, or I had several. Um, so a thought virus on its own in the, in the, 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 the area of the, the body that has already healed can be enough to trigger pain, swelling and inflammation. That's what was happening with people who were taken back to their workplace or even asked to think about the workplace reoccurred. Getting physiological responses because their brain assumed that, um, or, the, or the thought virus was enough to get their brain assuming that they were in danger again. So some of the most common thought viruses include things like I'm broken or I'm fragile. Um, Another common one is it hurts to move so it is safer to stay sitting on the couch. Now, that is not going to be true for a lot of people, but that's a thought virus that can trigger pain if we get up off the couch and move. Um, another one, and I, I, I can totally relate to this one, um, the one that says that big shiny expensive scanning machine can't find anything wrong, so, wrong, so it must be really bad. <laughs> now, that's a, not a logical thought virus at all, but it's still going to be powerful enough to trigger pain. Um, another one is this kind of injury never gets any better. Uh, another one, my doctor said this might become chronic and see he was right. Um, sometimes the messages we hear from our health practitioners, we give them enormous authority when it comes to issues of our bodies and pain. And many, many health practitioners are very aware of this and very responsible in how they communicate. But again, because so many I may not be aware of the impact of what they say, it's very easy. I actually know this because this is one of the things that happened to me very early on. In fact, the first or second time I saw my doctor, who wasn't my regular doctor, by the way, and that's a whole other story, um, he said to me, if you don't manage how you are at work and what you do, this will become chronic. Now, he might just as well have said to me that he was casting a magic spell on me to create a chronic injury, a chronic pain injury and, and, the, and no recovery at all. So being aware of those, you know, that particular kind of thought virus can be very powerful. Another one might be, I can never expand who I am because this pain limits me. It's an interpretation that can become a thought virus, which in turn can um, exacerbate the pain. And of course, there are many, many more. And we may have more than one thought virus whispering in our ears at any given time. So some of the ones I had with my elbow injury included, I'll never work again. Uh, my useful life is over. From now on, I will be a burden on my husband, the community, my family, the taxpayer, insert whoever into that thought virus. I even had the thought virus that said, my life is over, so I might as well end it now. So this is not just about managing our, vi our vibration to focus on healing. Remember I said at the top of the call, putting my focus on healing or being pain-free was, was pretty much impossible from that particular position. So, but it goes deeper than being simply a, 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 an energetic thing. This is a literal and physiological connection between those thoughts, which seem completely reasonable and logical at the time, and our levels of pain. Because remember, pain is not necessarily related to the severity of damage, but it is directly related to our brain's assessment of risk. And it can be really easy to feel like we are a victim of our own thoughts. So here is where I want to remind you all that <laughs> you are not your brain. You are not the victim of your brain. 
You are the user of your brain. You are its CEO. You are its handler. Whatever you call the larger, higher, more authentic part of you, whether you call it your higher self, your connection to source, your big thinker, your observing self, your consciousness, that part of you is in charge or can be when you decide it is so. You can choose to use it because we also know from the world of neuroplasticity, which is the phenomenon by, uh, of how we literally and physically change our brains, we know from that, that, uh, that discipline, that area of brain science, that your conscious decisions of what thoughts to think and what behaviours to do, thoughts and behaviours, can literally and physically rewire your brain. Now, it may well be that your brain has, and certainly I think this is what happened for me, that your brain has become wired to be hypersensitive to the sense of pain, injury and limitation. It is possible for you as the CEO of your brain to, re, to alter that wiring, to shift it back again. Um, it's that higher consciousness part of you which can literally and physically rewire your brain. So that means even if all you did was to eliminate your thought viruses, your pain would be soothed. We can see there's this direct relationship. A thought virus is a thought which is powerful enough to maintain a pain state. Now, we will move beyond that today, but this is where we start. So thought viruses are more common than you think. And how can you tell if you have one? It's really easy. You listen to how you talk about your current health situation, both with other people and within your own mind. And I want to be really, really clear right now. Those thought viruses can be tricksy things. <laughs> um, you, right now, you might be thinking, this woman's mad. She's saying my pain is not real. I am so not saying that. Um, or you might be thinking, if I could control my thoughts that easily, I wouldn't be here. Um, uh, you might have a sense of threat, as though I'm saying your pain doesn't count. Um, and obviously, your pain counts to me, or I wouldn't be doing this class. And I could tell you that I know where you are. I've been there. I have had some really strong resistance to giving up some of my own thought viruses. And perhaps the trickiest one was the thought virus which said I was a victim of badly mismanaged workloads and a badly mismanaged return-to-work process. Both of those things are actually true in the sense that the situation was badly managed by both management and me um, because I said yes to things I shouldn't have. But the thought virus said I was a helpless victim. That felt deeply true. But can you also see how that, that thought of being a helpless victim who was the, you know, to whom things happened, that enhanced and amplified my brain's sense of risk around the topic of my elbow. So I know that this piece can feel weird and scary and I hope that, that there is some sense that it can also feel empowering and liberating. Uh, now, Sandy, did I hear you making noises preparatory to asking a question? <laughs> um, no, no. Okay. Um, uh, you know, because I'm really like getting interested now in, in, the, in the how to change. You know, yes. how to get I'm, get, I, and I'm going to do that. Yeah, I'm going to do that right now. <laughs> Good. Because, yes, that was because that was the thing for me. I got to the point where I went, right, I've got all these thought viruses. Well, now what? I mean, sometimes simply knowing that's all it is, you know, it's simply being able to say, oh, it's just a thought. It's not damage. It's just a thought that that on its own sometimes made a difference. Um, and I and I still I use. A lot of these techniques that I'm talking about today, I use now to, 
you know, to resolve a headache. I used to be really, really subject to terrible headaches, tension headaches and migraines that would go for 24 hours and I'd have to take major painkillers, blah, blah. That no longer happens because I manage them very differently. Um, and part of that is to do with how I think about them. But I will talk about that in a minute. Um, so it's not, you know, I use my elbow injury as a specific example of these of these things because it's so useful to see how 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 it unfolded. Um, so when it when it comes to so thank you for that yes that that that's what we're going to talk about for the for the next forty minutes or whatever however long it takes. Um, so the key here is to begin with a lot of self compassion. There's this sense of reaching out a, a, a kind of a tendril of inquiry and curiosity and being willing to notice thought viruses. As you do this, you want to be at least as kind to yourself in that moment as you would be to a beloved friend or child um, because any sense of judgment directed inwards is likely to trigger a sense of risk in your brain and we know what that means. Potentially, it means more pain, so we don't want that. Um, equally, a sense of blaming other people, which seemed completely reasonable to me at the time, is going to make this a stickier process. So you need to do this with ultra high levels of kindness and radical gentleness turned inwards. Um, you, can, you, can almost, you can also use a journal to record a thought virus as you notice it. And this is not so that you can dwell on it, not so that you can sort of do it, dive in and do any analysis or research or where did that come from. We're not, gonna, we're not doing any of that. But it's basically so that you can expose it to the spotlight glare of your full awareness. It's like you're saying, I see you, thought virus. I see you for what you are. And that way, if it comes up again, which it may well do, you know what it is. It's harder for your thought viruses to hide in the shadows, whispering poison into your ear, if you've got some way of saying, aha, I'm pinning you down. Imagine that you're pinning that thought virus onto a kind of, you know, I just had this mental image of... Um, uh, the kinds of the ways that Victorian um, uh, natural history buffs used to go out and capture specimens and then pin them to a board and a display cabinet. That's what you can do with your thought viruses. When you pin them down, they begin to lose their power. Sometimes simple awareness can be all that's required to cure a thought virus. It's like shining that, that sunshine on the thought virus and, and, and uh, exposes it for a lie immediately. Uh, it's, it's that sense of you, you as the user of your brain, you know that it's merely a thought. You don't have to believe it. You are the user of your brain, obviously. But often it takes more conscious, conscious effort. effort. <laughs> um, so let's talk about how to release a thought virus. Uh, like I said, awareness is one way. When I had the thought, I will never work again, even though that felt utterly true in the moment, my higher self could also see how ridiculous that was. I couldn't see how on earth I could work again. I couldn't imagine any kind of work that I could do that didn't involve using my arms. And at that point in time, my, my injury felt as though, I mean, I would literally unload the dishwasher using only my, I, I, would, I would hold my injured arm to my chest. This is completely unconscious. In such a protective gesture, I, it meant I, I, could, I had to unload the dishwasher with one hand. And this was when, I, I really wasn't as damaged as my brain kept telling me I was. And I was, because I didn't know how this stuff worked, I still believed what my brain was telling me. I still believed the pain. Um, so that sense of 
I can't. I, I had no idea how I could do it. But I also couldn't really t continue to entertain the thought that I would never work again. That so that that uh, uh, when I became aware of this thought, I'll never work again. At the moment I became really aware of that, the fact that it was simply a thought virus, it seemed to dissolve and it seemed easier to kind of go, well, that's not true. <laughs> it's clearly not true. That's just crazy. I've got a brain. I can still work. I can still do things, which leads me to the second one. Now, this may not apply to everybody, but it applied to me. And, and it's worth sharing this story because I think sometimes, uh, again, when we've been in pain for a long time, it seems to become a very serious matter. And sometimes humour can, can completely shatter a thought virus. When I mentioned to my hand therapist how fearful I was about not being able to work again and, and not knowing what kind of work I could do, because I couldn't type at that point, um, and that felt like such a limiting thing. So I said, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And my hand therapist knows me. She knows that I've got a cheeky sense of humour. So she described her experiences of a previous patient who had had a, a, a similar issues with her injury. And this patient had apparently said to her, well, if I can't type and I can't do anything else, at least I can still talk. I'll become a phone sex line worker. <laughs> now, and I, we laughed hilariously as we teased out the details of what that might look like because all you need to pursue that line of work would be a phone line and a bit of imagination. I could do that. And no, I never did pursue it, but just having that conversation with my hand therapist and the fact that it was so absurd and kind of wicked and naughty and not the way we are supposed to have a professional, you know, patient therapist conversation, all of that delighted my subversive nature and it punctured, it finally punctured that I'll never work again thought virus because I just, I was so delighted by the absurdity of it and the, and the, the way that it made me laugh. Another one is to practice mental hygiene. This means avoiding anything that feeds the thought virus. You let it simply die of starvation. This means getting super picky about what you let in to your mind. So if you've got something that's been painful and you haven't had it checked out, for goodness sake, stop Googling your symptoms. Either you've, you know, even for me, I was still Googling stuff about tennis elbow way past where I should have because there's all kinds of crap out there. We know this. Um, so make sure you've got, um, you know, you, that you're, you're, that you're under the care of a, a trusted health professional and be super aware of your practitioner's own thought viruses. You don't have to get into a fight with them, but simply notice any statements which include phrases like most people with this condition, or we often find that, um, yes, those might be statistical facts. But you might be an outlier. In fact, when you know how law of attraction works and you know that you are the CEO of your brain and you know that you have more power to create than the average person, you are already automatically an outlier. You can be the one who defies standard medical wisdom. Similarly, be very cautious about joining support groups. Pick ones where people consciously choose positive strategies and offer gentle support rather than those groups where people share the drama of the situation or want to emphasize your victim status because it makes them feel needed or whatever it might be. Um, so being very, very picky about the energy around this particular topic is going to be of great benefit because it will starve out some of those thought viruses. Um, 
Another one is that you can prove the virus wrong. Now, this doesn't apply to everybody, but it was certainly my own experience. So going back to my saga, I had the surgery, the damaged tissue was gone. I walked back into my office, pain flared up again. Um, so what had been, what I realized after the event, that what had been happening was over the months before I had surgery, every attempt to, to treat it fell over when I went back to work because ev the, the activities at work were genuinely re-injuring the tissue. They were, these are their little micro microscopic tears in the tissue that, uh, dis that sort of interrupt its functionality. Uh, so every time I went back to work and I did work activity, um, it was genuinely being re-injured. But I developed a very strong and unconscious thought virus that said, even after I stopped doing the specific problem activity, that any activity would re-injure me. So not surprisingly, I continued to get pain from doing activity of any kind. But so we've got, we had, I had the surgery, I tried going back to work, that didn't work. So months down the track, probably three months down the track after the surgery, I'd been doing my re rehab and my stretches. I'd been seeing my hand therapist uh, once a week um, for massage, for um, ultrasound treatment and a bunch of other things. Um, and months after the surgery, I was still in pain, not su such acute pain, but I was still in pain and it was, I was still getting flare-ups um, pretty easily from doing activity. My hand therapist asked me if I felt ready to do a grip st strength test, which is an empirical way of seeing whether that, that the injury has actually repaired. Um, you do the grip strength test in, on both sides and you can tell from the comparison of numbers, it's a very straightforward comparison of, of, of numbers that tells you whether the right and left elbows are functioning the same. So I did the grip strength test and the numbers were the same. I think my right arm was one point stronger than my left arm and that's because I'm right-handed, so it's my dominant hand, which is, so that's what you'd expect. So I, here I was confronted with these numbers that said, your injury is healed. The fact that you've had pain when you've done activity, that does not mean you've been re-injured. Now that used to be true. It used to be that going back to the office and doing the work was re-injuring the, was, was re the damage, was kind of renewing the damage, if you like. It was preventing the repair. But you had the surgery, the injury was, you know, the damage was removed, the, the remaining tissue has healed and thickened and replaced what was lost. Uh, your strength is back completely. The pain is not related to damage in any way, shape or form. Having that proof that the virus was wrong, the thought virus about, you know, that, that activity will re-injure me, that, knowing that thought virus was wrong, it, it almost just, it just about disappeared overnight. Now, I had other viruses at play, but for many people, that single thought virus being eliminated can be enough. And I want to make a big caveat about this. <laughs> Obviously, there is a big difference between proving a thought virus made a mistake and being in denial about genuinely damaged tissue. So please don't make an assumption on your own. Get this checked by a practitioner. Um, your practitioner will have a, a empirical things that may well prove a thought virus wrong. Um, I once had someone ask me in all seriousness how to use law of attraction to dull the pain so he could run a half marathon six weeks after breaking his thigh bone. Not surprisingly, um, it might look, maybe this is my own limiting beliefs, but I couldn't begin to imagine that that was a good idea. So I suggested that he allow his body to heal fully while planning on the next half marathon and visualizing full recovery at the right time. So 
we're not talking here about being in denial. What we're talking about is getting some empirical proof that the damage is not there. You can make space for different options. So one of my tricky thought viruses that I have definitely had over time, more to do with headaches and migraines, there's a, a thought virus which says, I have to manage this pain without drugs or I am a failure as a spiritual human being. I don't, you know, if I can't manage this without drugs, then there's something wrong with me. Um, I've soldiered on with a migraine until I literally couldn't stay upright and then taken the painkiller while feeling deeply guilty and feeling like a complete wuss. Um, when I learned about how pain works, I realized that the headaches, basically headaches happen for me when my body has been saying a break, it has been saying, take a break for hours before I start to listen. So I realized that I, I, I suffer enormously by ignoring my body and then I would condemn it for betraying me by giving me a headache. Then I would drive myself on as a kind of punishment for being weak and then I would take a pill and then I would feel guilty. It was not can you see how many thought viruses there are in that sequence? No wonder my poor brain felt at risk. And no wonder the pains became intense and long-lasting. So these days, I very rarely get a headache. And when I do, I stop work. I send emails to anyone who's waiting for, some, for something from me to let them know it'll be 24 hours late. I postpone client sessions if I need to because they're not going to get a, a decent coaching session from me when I'm in that state. Uh, I go and get rest. And I'm willing to take an over-the-counter painkiller because I've got the message from my brain. I'm listening to the pain. I'm going to go and rest. And while I am resting, I'm happy to give myself the, the gift of relief. Now, I don't always do this, but if the headache is intense enough, I know that I'm going to rest better if I use a painkiller. So being willing to use those options uh, without having any judgment around them or guilt around them makes an enormous difference. One of the reasons that painkillers have a very bad reputation is that our culture has trained us to use them to numb the pain and then to continue doing the thing that created the pain in the first place. So painkillers, we've been using them as a, as a society. We tend to use them to mask the very thing that is designed to protect and nurture us. Now, I'm not, obviously, I'm not, taking, take, I'm not saying take a pill for every passing moment of pain, but I am saying that being open to that option may bring relief when it feels like an act of genuine kindness. So it may be the aligned thing to do um, to take a painkiller, but it's got to be done from that context of I'm listening to my body, I'm giving her the rest that she needs, I'm doing the things that she needs me to do, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to the messages of pain, and I'm also giving myself the gift of relief because I don't think I have to suffer anymore. Uh, Another one is meditation. We know that meditation obviously reduces stress of all kinds uh, and, uh, and using meditation specifically to um, find relief from thought viruses can be, can be helpful. Any meditation technique will help, but, but particularly the ones that uh, are, are around forgiveness or releasing and meditation techniques which encourage you to adopt a comfortable position and have some freedom built in. So any rules about how to meditate correctly may not be your friend because we want to we want to flow a sense of safety to your brain. So so it's probably not a great idea to pick a meditation that says you have to maintain the lotus position for 20 minutes or you've failed. <laughs> That's not really going to help. So that's how, those are some ideas on how to release thought viruses um, and how to manage them, how to recognize them and, and, uh, and step back into that role of being the one who's managing your brain's experience of risk. Do we have any questions before I move into the next bit, which is more the proactive stuff that we can activate?
Any questions on that so far? I am a little curious, Jeanette. Hello, Anna. Anna Babana. She's on the call. Hiya. Oh, thank God. Yes, I came late. Uh, uh, and <laughs> right. uh, I apologize for However, I'm, uh, when you were talking about um, medications, uh, yes. painkillers and that, um, uh, one thought then is I wonder, okay, it masks uh, or covers the pain uh, uh-huh. so that one can continue on. Now, with some things, I'm thinking, uh, am I continuing to cause, am I causing more damage? Is it possible causing damage to my body further? Yeah. By this is, but this is this is this is the point that I wanted to make is that okay. that we listen to the pain and we do whatever is needed to to whatever action is our brain is is you know a brain calls our attention. Sorry, our brain delivers pain in order to get us to take action to protect ourselves from whatever it is that's causing the pain. So if it's injury or damage or illness or whatever, we so we need to take those actions. That might mean going to bed and resting. The taking problem the arises... Yeah, yeah and, and taking the medication it. and doing that, if we have any judgment of ourselves for the fact that we like that you know that we feel better when we take medication if you if for whatever reason you don't like to take medication that's totally cool listen to that inspiration but if i i personally um if if i get a a, a migraine or a, or a bad headache i want to rest i'm going to make all the provisions to give myself space to recover and i'm going to give myself the gift of pain relief because from because i've let go of any sense of attachment to or, or judgment of taking a, a paracetamol. Okay. So, I so I'll take a paracetamol. But but where we run into trouble is when we use the pain, the painkillers or the medications to mask the pain and then we continue to do the thing that caused the pain in the first place or that created the pain in the first place. Now, I was doing that with my elbow. I was taking, I would, you know, if I had something that I wanted to get done, um, and this is particularly in the period where I was back at work and I was re-injuring it. I know you missed the whole saga, so. Um, uh, but basically, after my elbow was injured between the initial injury and when I had surgery several months later, there was a period of time where we were trying to manage the recovery and I was also back at work and um, probably doing, I know, doing more than I should have. Uh, yeah. And... So I was I was literally re-injuring it, and I was using painkillers to mask the pain, so that I could get my stuff done, follow management directives, you know, do the work that I, at the time, felt so important. Um, right. And as a well, consequence, I re-injuring. Mm-hmm. I, I did. Uh, um, uh, I did get that part, and um, oh, good, good, awesome. Yes, yeah, I, I know awesome. there is. is uh, well, I'm looking forward to the rest. Okay. Because I will have a question awesome. then again later yep. on. I just wanted to be clear in okay. my head before we carried on. All right. Okay, awesome. Thanks. Thank I'm you, ready. Anna. Okay. Um, anyone else got any questions they want to ask or anything they want to add in at this point? Or we're happy to go keep going? Okay. Cool. Let's keep going. So let's talk about some proactive thoughts and beliefs around pain. So obviously, releasing thought viruses can make a huge difference, and and that was certainly my experience 
my experience. But you can get a lot of juice and you can ramp up your pain-soothing skills by actively practicing some new and better thoughts. So, so you can manage your vibration about pain and your body. And one of the keys to this, I think, is, well, there are a couple of keys. One is self-love. And the other one is understanding the concept that um, there's a wonderful, there's a popular saying which is attributed to the Buddha and it's got many translations but with the, the slightly different from each other but basically it's the notion that pain is a part of life, suffering is optional. The suffering comes in terms of what the meaning that we assign to pain. So those are a couple of the areas that I want to talk about. Um, but let's start out with talking about um, how we might use our awareness of our thought viruses to create some better versions, some alternative thoughts that we can actively practice. So if you become aware of a thought virus happening, um, having a, a really good, this is one, another reason for jotting them down, <clears throat> pardon me, it means you can have a look at them and sort of go, okay, what would be a nicer thought? What thought would feel better here? Excuse me, just let me pause for a minute. I need to cough. Sorry about that. Um, so... So, for example, one of mine was it's safer to sit on the couch and not move while I'm in pain because after all, so many months of getting re-injured, uh, my brain was convinced. My, you know, I had this thought virus that said any kind of activity is going to injure me. So not only did I, did I uh, become aware of that thought virus and, and that helped me to begin to release it, but I also created a thought, for a, a deliberate thought that I practiced, which was my body loves gentle stretching and movement and I love how it brings healing to my pain. So I was able to, that would inspire me to get up off the couch. Anytime I had that thought, uh, it would inspire me to get up off the couch, um, perhaps walk to the bottom of my garden and back and do my do my rehab stretches, the, the, the ones that I knew brought, relief from the pain so it's an odd phenomenon that you find yourself you know if you're fearful of pain you find yourself kind of in this rigid still I don't want to move because it's going to hurt um, position and then as you sort of relax the body and stretch it a little bit it feels better when you can add in a deliberate thought that says my body loves gentle stretching and movement and it, I love how it brings healing to my pain that thought feels so much better than it's safer to sit on the couch and not move. <laughs> um, another one, these injuries never heal. That was a thought virus that I had, that I acquired eventually. Instead of that, I would say, I am healing now. And what I liked about that particular proactive thought is that the, um, it's an immediate thing. It's not saying I am fully healed now because immediately my brain would have stepped in with a thing that said, well, that's just bullshit. You know, you've got damage there. Um, you've got pain. You can't possibly be fully healed. But to say I am healing now, even if I'm talking about an area of my body where there is, because um, I have a, I had another injury way, way back, which is a disc prolapse, prolapse, three months on the floor, not walking, blah, blah. And I know, so I know I've got some degenerative um damage there I've got some damage there which has led to degenerative stuff um, even there I know that there are at, at a cellular level my body is always going through healing um, processes cells are being replaced uh, cells are being renewed 
So there is this sense that I am healing now as an overarching thing is a much more positive thought than these injuries never heal. Um, another one that <laughs> I definitely had this one and I know that it's a common thought virus for many people, sufferers of pain. Uh, the thought virus is, I'll never have sex again. <laughs> Without going into too much detail, put it this way. If you cannot lean any weight on your elbow at all, and if you're paranoid about having it bumped, it pretty much puts an end to your sex life. Uh, well, not all of it, but it, when you're in pain all the time, sex is not something that you're going to enjoy. And it, I don't know if this is similarly true for men. I suspect it might be, but it definitely, was definitely true for me. I'll never have sex again. So that became... I am excited to explore other new ways of experiencing sex. So again, it's that sense of... It, it, so rather than have a, a something that's its direct opposite, because having the direct opposite of your thought virus might be a bit too much of a challenge for your brain to take on board. So you can find a sort of sideways, you can sidle up on it, you can, you can find something that's a little lateral. Um, the thought virus that says, I am limited in how I can expand, might become something like, I am open to expanding in new ways and having my own experience become a blessing to others. So that sense of um, uh, being open to possibility, even though you cannot see how. Remember I talked about how the sense of, I'll never work again. I, I, I couldn't possibly see how I could ever work again. Um, but, having, but being able to come up with an alternative to that is, would be something like, um, I'm, looking, um, I, I'm open to new and different ways of working. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> in my case, I got a lot of fun out of thinking about doing that as a phone sex line worker. Um, uh, and I am broken might become I am whole even though my brain is giving me a pain experience. So can you see how you can sort of use your thought viruses to design a new thought which feels better than the thought virus did? It doesn't have to light you up with ecstasy right now. It, all it needs to do is feel better. So if, even if all you get is a tiny flicker of relief, that is on track. That is taking your vibration into the direction you want to go. And as you practice that thought, you may find that you want to enlarge it to something even better or refine it or make it more specific. Um, and you'll want to make sure, obviously, I'm talking to, um, you know, people who live on the line, I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys know how this stuff works. But um, to anyone listening to the recording, you want to make sure that your new thought is expressed as a positive statement. So something like, I do not have pain won't work because your brain doesn't register a negative. All it hears is, I have pain. And we don't want that. So instead, you might want to aim for something like, I move freely and in comfort, or even I move more freely than before, and I'm doing a good job of nurturing my body. So any of those kinds of thoughts will be good. And once you have, uh, so you can either have a variety of different thoughts that you use specifically to proactively replace your thought virus. So anytime you notice the thought virus at play, You've already pinned it down, so you're becoming good at recognizing it. You might get new ones that you hadn't noticed before. You might find there are ones hidden underneath. You know, we can sometimes have these in layers. And as you expose them to the light of day, you, another one might be lurking behind that you hadn't spotted before. As you do that, you can create a new a, a replacement thought and you can activate that. You can practice it. Um, one one really nice way to do this is to have um, a, one that's kind of like a foundation thought. So something like, um, I am doing a good job of nurturing my body or I am whole even though I'm having a pain experience. 
any of those sorts of thoughts, um, if you want to have it as a foundation thought, you can practice it a hundred times a day. And that sounds really hard, but um, the way that I do it, it's easier than it sounds. I, what I do with this, um, when I'm using a foundation thought and activating it more often, uh, I link it to water. So that means I, t I say whatever thought I'm working with, I'll say it 10 times every time I encounter water. So that means I, I do it 10 times when I go to the bathroom. I do it 10 times when I'm in front of the mirror washing my hands. I do it 10 times when I'm cleaning my teeth, when I'm making tea, when I'm cooking a meal. It adds up really fast. <laughs> um, you could just do it five times uh, each time you do any of those kind of activities or, or, or find another way to kind of embed it in your, in your day. You could work with one new thought at a time and do each one for a week to 10 days or you might have a single supportive thought that you like for several months or you might want to just use these specific um, antidotes to thought virus whenever a thought virus comes up. Use that thought virus as a bounce to practice the replacement thought that feels better. Um, one way that you can really help rewire your brain even faster when you're replacing a, an old thought, a sticky old thought with a new one one of the ways that you can embed that thought really, that new thought really solidly in your brain much faster is to tie it, to activate some kind of sensory pleasure as you do it. Um, and there are all sorts of reasons that I don't have kind of space and time to go into today. I talk about this in my Vibrehab product. Um, but use, engaging sensory pleasure actually helps to rewire the brain faster. Um, so you can have, um, my preferred way of doing this is to have a, a little bottle of essential oil in my pocket and every time I'm working with an old thought that I don't like and replacing it with a new one, I grab that thing out of my pocket and I take three deep breaths as I'm reciting the new thought. So you can use that as a way to help anchor it. Um, uh, so for my money, the, the key here is to experiment, to, to play with it, to try things out to see which way works best for you. So you want to be your own field anthropologist and simply notice what's working without judgment. And that brings me to the next point I want to make, and that is that self-love is absolutely key when it comes to managing pain through our vibrations, through using law of attraction. We have an expectation. We, we, we were kind of raised with an expectation, most of us, that our bodies will work properly. And when we experience pain, it's really easy to fall into patterns of self-criticism, self-doubt, a sense of betrayal, even shame, uh, because we live in a world which often sees pain as some kind of weakness or failure. So, uh, you know, we can, we, can, we can experience a sense of shame, as I did, around the idea that, I mean, I, it's so odd, even though um, this had, you know, my injury resulted from some cack-handed management um, and a decision, a bad decision on my part as well. I felt shame and guilt about the fact that for several months I was living on um, workers' compensation. I wasn't working and I was getting an income and that made me feel guilty and, shame, and, and ashamed uh, because of the beliefs that I had about that. Now, research shows that shame in particular triggers similar neurological responses to physical trauma. Self-criticism, self-doubt, feelings of betrayal, they all trigger our fight or flight response, which sends floods of anxiety and fear neurochemicals through our brain and through our bodies, 
Um, and it won't surprise you to realize that if your default thinking around pain, around your pain, is anything or includes anything like shame, self-criticism, self-doubt, frustration or anger at yourself, and that's really easy to do when we have pain, then your brain will experience this constant hum of anxiety. And we know that the hum of anxiety will add to your brain's sense of risk and therefore the pain experience. So those feelings of shame, self-doubt, etc., etc., have the potential to increase pain levels. So we know better. We know that we're the users of our brains and we make choices. So self-love has got to be a choice here. And it's not just the self-physical, self-nurturing that obviously we want to do when we have pain experience. It's about um, giving our brain maximum support. Uh, so it's about the things that we think about ourselves when it comes to pain. So again, some of this relates to that idea of thought, replacing the old thought viruses with new thoughts. So if you become aware of any thought virus that has any sense of, you know, oh, I'm such a loser because I got injured at work or, uh, you know, I'm, 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 so, I'm so limited, I can't do what I want to do because of the pain. Any of those thoughts, if there's a seed of, of doubt and self-criticism there, you want to find a better thought. You want to find a more loving thought. And when you can express it physically as a form of physical nurturing, there are a whole lot of other benefits as well because you're bringing it into that, you're bringing that experience into your body. So, so he, some of the ways that you can express that self-love um, include uh, noticing any self-critical thoughts and replacing them with thoughts of gentle compassion towards yourself, the way you would to a beloved friend, a beloved child, um, any, anybody for whom you had any kind of compassion and empathy, flow that towards yourself. Uh, noticing those self-doubting thoughts and replacing them with thoughts of, one of the ways you can do this is to replace replace this, the sort of the, the, the physical doubt, thoughts of physical doubt, or sorry, thoughts of self-doubt about your physical body. You can replace them with thoughts of how many miracles your body performs each and every day. You can always find a system within your body which is doing it quietly and not making a fuss and not getting your attention through pain. Focus on, spend a few minutes focusing on that part and reminding yourself that you have an amazing body and really flowing some deep love and appreciation for your body. Um, you can take action to heal to heal old critical voices, inner voices. Um, I have a separate teleclass on that. Um, I'll make sure that there's a link to that in the resources. You can introduce a self-love practice such as Louise Hay's mirror work uh, or a worthiness practice. And again, I'll share some links in the PDF resource. Um, let yourself off the hook for worry. So if you have any sense of... Uh, worry about doing things perfectly or, or do you, even doing things at the level you used to do before the pain occurred. And th again, that was a big one for me. Um, oh my gosh. Uh, one of the, one of the uh, issues with my injury was that uh, I lost my ability temporarily. I have it back now. It's stronger again now. But for a while there, I couldn't grip um, a vegetable strongly enough to cut it without it rolling across off the chopping board and across the floor. It actually became dangerous for me to try and cut vegetables because the danger of the knife slipping and cutting me was much was much higher because I couldn't hold on to the vegetable properly without it hurting. Um, and 
So I started buying pre-cut veggies from the supermarket, which was great. I mean, it was fantastic that they were available, but I felt like such a failure. I felt like, a, you know, a failure as a housekeeper, as a cook, as a woman. It was extraordinary the degree to which I judged myself because of this one simple thing. So that kind of uh, understanding of, of, um, uh, of dropping, being willing to drop my standards and being okay with the fact that I had dropped my standards, letting myself off the hook for that kind of stuff, that really helps. So that's, a, again, that means being very compassionate. If somebody else had been injured and was experiencing this, I would have had enormous compassion for them. But it's, you know, obviously my own relationship with my body and my expectations were not helpful. Um, and physical nurturing that you like, massage, self-massage, baths, hot showers, hot tea, all those sorts of things. Doing those consciously and intentionally as an act of self-love gives them an, an additional bonus um, value, if you like. When I was under the care of my hand therapist, I knew that while I was getting specific physical healing benefits from the treatments I had with her, I also knew that my willingness to receive the physical kindness from her was really important and so uh, I could begin shifting my whole relationship with pain when I chose to really consciously and intentionally bask in the delight of being massaged and gently stretched it felt so good and adding that layer of sort of conscious the, the intentionality to it really helped um, so have we got any questions at the moment Okay, cool. Because um, we're, we're, we're getting to the, close to the end now. I said I'd try and get this in 90 minutes and we should be get, able to get there and have a little time for questions. Woohoo! Um, so I want to roll back around to that notion about pain and suffering, the relationship between pain and suffering. And the idea that pain is a part of life. All of us are going to have moments where we stub our toe or you know, a, 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 have um, a, something more serious that, that hurts. The suffering part is optional. The suffering comes from the meaning that we assign to pain. So when we look at physical pain, even when it is urgently trying to get our attention, we can choose how much suffering comes along with it. Because remember, we're the users of our brains. Um, we get to choose the meaning that we assign to the, to the pain we experience, the physical pain that we experience. For example, these days I do still get occasional elbow flare-ups uh, because there have been changes to my neurology in that part of my body. I don't, I, and I don't know if that's something I will live with forever or something that will eventually pass. And I'm okay with that. Now, for the longest time I wasn't. For the longest time, really, seriously, uh, this injury happened in 2009 and I will say that I've only got okay with it maybe a year ago. So for a really long time... I desperately wanted to know that I would one day be completely pain-free. I had a value judgment about pain that it represented, well, this is what it represented for me. It represented aging, the end of my freedom, my capacity for adventure, and a decline in my life. I had to let all of that go. I had to let all of those value judgment, judgments go, and that wasn't easy. There was a time when I felt that the pain was a limitation, a betrayal, a nuisance, but I was confusing the pain itself with the meaning that I gave it. I made the pain mean limitation, betrayal, aging, decline, and all of those things. 
So I chose a new meaning for the pain. I went back to the brain research and I looked more carefully at what the pain might mean for me. Now when I feel that pain, uh, I know that it means I've chosen to, for it to mean <laughs> that my body is looking out for me. She's reminding me of my own boundaries, not limitations. She's expressing love for me, even when pain systems alter, which is what mine did. The intention there, my brain's intention is to protect me. So there's no betrayal. This, this sense I had that my body had betrayed me, it's a, it, was a, it was the meaning I assigned to it. So if I've, if, and I do know that my elbow flare-ups tend to happen if I have scheduled something I don't love uh, or if I push myself to do what I love for too long. If I get really engrossed in what I'm doing and my body is telling me to take a break, this is starting to sound familiar by the way because this is where I get headaches as well. If I'm doing something that I absolutely love and I refuse to listen to my body because I'm having too much fun, uh, I can almost guarantee I will get either a headache or an elbow flare-up. It's basically my, my brain saying enough is enough. Uh, so when I experience pain, the very first thing I do and, and I when I remember, and I'll be honest about this, I don't necessarily get this right 100% of the time. It's still a work in progress. When I experience pain, the first thing I try to do is to thank my body and my brain. Then I check myself for thought viruses. And if I find one, which occasionally I do, I will go to the better feeling thought. I will make the inquiry and find a better feeling thought. And then I will ask my body, what do you need from me right now? And follow whatever answer I get. So this is why when I get a headache, I can tell from the feeling of it whether I just need to take an hour off and have a cup of tea and sit on the couch and watch some, something on Netflix or whether I need to postpone everything for 24 hours, go to bed and take a painkiller. I find that out when I, when I drop the meaning that I used to assign to headaches, which was, you know, I'm broken, I'm a failure, blah, blah, blah. When I drop all of those and I can genuinely sit with my body and say, what is it that, what do you need from me right now? Now, obviously... My own specific pain experience is different from yours. And the reason I've used it today is to kind of help to flesh out what I've been talking about. But consider how you might choose better feeling thoughts about your pain. Consider how you might clean up the meaning that you assign to it. And then we get into the really, this is where you get extra bonus credit points is by doing the next step, which is finding a way to flow acceptance and even if you can manage it, appreciation for the gift that your brain is delivering. As you gently feel your way into the core of the pain, not avoiding it because it's not scary, and being willing to sit with it, when you bring all that appreciation and self-love to the experience, being unafraid and remembering that your body is loving you right now, even though you are experiencing pain, even when the pain systems may have altered so they work differently from what we expect, the intention here is still all about self-love. When you can drop the thought viruses, when you can find the better feeling thoughts, when you can thank your brain and your body for doing such a good job, your pain levels will be soothed, I have no doubt. Uh, your brain's a, a sense of risk will diminish. We, we know that the, the, the pain experience is not related to the extent of damage. It is related to the sense of risk. So all of these things will help to soothe your pain. The more you can do of them, the more soothing you will get. 
Um, and uh, I will be providing a separate guided visualization which walks you through the process, a process to help dissolve thought viruses and to help connect to that sense of love and appreciation uh, and acceptance. Now, obviously, I'm not asking you right now in this red hot moment, when this information is new to you, I'm not saying to you, right, stop this moment and go and appreciate your pain. I think that's a really big ask. If you can do it, if you can pull it off, fantastic. But, uh, but we know that putting yourself under any pressure to do certain things is, is potentially going to trigger a sense of, you know, I'm not doing it right or I have to do it better. We're not going to play that game because we, we, we want to make sure that self-love is at the heart of this. It's right at the core. Self-love is at the core of both the pain experience and the, the solution to the pain experience. Um, so any questions? Anna, did you have a question you'd like to throw into the, into the mix? Yes, I was just unmuting myself. Awesome. Um, uh, Keen uh, here is, uh, you had said something about uh, uh, when pain, um, there are reasons. The reasons that are actual uh, physical rather than um, perpetuated and aided by our thoughts. Let's say, example, okay, I'll use me. Um, and my neck. I've already had one uh, surgery. I have spacers and a plate in my neck. And I remember very clearly um, the first time I went to see the neurosurgeon after the surgery, he said, yes, 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 well, more pain or more, the weight of your head will be uh, held up by the upper vertebra in your neck. So you will need another surgery in about 10 years. I'm finding it very ironic because I'm experiencing a lot of problems right now, and it's been mm-hmm. almost 10 years, or just under, oh, over 10 years. So if there is a, a I'm, I'm wondering about, um, if there is, uh, you know, say deterioration of uh, vertebra or bone or something that is clearly uh, biological that they can yep. see, oh, yes, this is happening. Uh-huh. What can we do at that point? Is there a way that we can hmm, uh, avoid further? Uh, I mean, recognizing now, I'm now I'm kind of kicking myself in the butt, going, I knew I shouldn't have listened to the man when he told me that at the time, <laughs> but I kept yep. thinking about it, and it's like he said yep. this, but blah blah blah, and it's because yeah. people, yeah. you know, family asks. So what? Yeah. Do you get around okay. to where I'm kind of getting to? I, I do, I do. And um, okay. I, and I think, I, I don't know whether you heard the part where I was talking about the pain mechanism and I, I talked about the, the the two kind of myths about pain. One myth is that pain is directly related to the severity of damage or to the extent of damage. Uh, we know that's not true. Um, we also know that pain is, uh, the extent of our pain is linked to the degree of risk that our brain perceives. So, right. so, so, what I want to make clear is, I am not saying don't get checked out. I am saying, if if you're experiencing pain, I will be the first one to say, go and have it looked at, and make sure that you're having it looked at by a health professional 
who right. is, um, you know, you, you, you want to, like I said before, you want to get picky about your mental hygiene when it comes to anything like an injury or, an, you know, a, a long-standing change in the body. Yeah, um, kind of like get picky about products that we use in a yeah. way. Yeah. Not yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, one of the phenomena that, that, that our ancestors never had to deal with is that very often there are many, many of us living on the planet with injuries or conditions or whatever that would have killed us in our 30s if, if we hadn't had access to modern medicine and surgery and what have you. So, so the systems within our brain and our neurology um, are also now dealing with circumstances, internal circumstances and, you know, things like plates in the body and so on that they that 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 are sort of outside the the standard operating system if you like yeah. if that makes sense um uh but i definitely would say for, uh, the first place i would go to is to say that um having uh having doubt about what's actually going on is a it can be a really powerful source of of uh, the brain's sense of danger and risk. So, for example, uh, about five weeks ago, I noticed a little spot on my back that seemed, it felt like a pimple. You know, it's just, you know, occasionally you get pimples and you sort of go, oh, that's a bit, it felt like a blind pimple. It was painful. It was a bit um, rough on the top. And I sort of said to my husband, can you have a look at this? What does it look like? And he said it looks like a pimple. And I was like, okay. And that two weeks later, it hadn't changed. And it was feeling worse and it was getting really sore. And I decided that I'd better get it checked out because I couldn't see it. Mm-hmm. My husband clearly didn't know what it was. And uh, every time it would itch and every time I inadvertently scratched it, it would hurt so much. And immediately, as soon as I became aware of it, I would have these floods of thoughts about, you know, it, it's a probably a mental melanoma. It's probably this. It's probably that, which is which I knew was not helping. So, made an appointment, went to see the doctor. She checked it out and said, "Yeah, it looks like it might be one thing or the other. Either way, it's probably benign. Either way, we should get it out and have it have the pathology done." So I had it removed a week and a half ago, and um, uh, went back to see her on Tuesday. Today is Friday, my time. So I went back to see her on Tuesday, three days ago. And she said, yep, completely benign, uh, totally removed. And uh, I had the stitches out. And it has um, the, It was like that certainty, that relief of kind of knowing all is well, it's fine. The, I haven't experienced pain basically from the moment she took it out, even though I had stitches and I had a big cut where she took it out, even though I had all of that going on, I didn't experience pain because I felt relief that I would now know. There was no more mystery. There was no, there's nothing to fear. And part of that is that even if it had been something much more sinister, I, I, I don't have fear around it. So so, so the, the uncertainty going made a difference to the pain levels. So I definitely, I definitely would have it looked at and have it checked out by, you know, by um, a health oh, professional that you trust. Oh yeah, obviously. Well, me with my neck, I'm seeing somebody. Yeah. I'm seeing the same neurosurgeon guy on the ninth, but I'm just right. looking back in retrospect. I'm kind of going, oh, damn it. Um, yeah. yeah. Did I bring it on? By you didn't bring it on. Just no. taking that in. Yeah, not 
don't go down that path because there's a there's a real risk here. You may well have done, but there's a real risk <laughs> here if you if you do that of starting to go down the path of self criticism. Mm-hmm. And we're not okay. playing that game. Well, no, I'm not. So, yeah, it may I have heard. occurred because you didn't know how your brain and how pain worked. Um, that might be true, and it might also be true that the unfolding of this and the new understanding of this might be the biggest gift that you'll be going to, that you're going to be giving to yourself and to those who, that you love. Yeah, I'm seeing. I, no. I'm always seeing reasons, and uh, yeah. that's good. Okay, so you carry on now. Thank you, Janet. Uh, uh, well, I, thank you, Anna. I appreciate that. Um, really, all I wanted to say by way of wrapping up is to say that. Um, I will be sharing those links to some additional resources which are specifically designed to help all, to help um, uh, re, re, kind of rebalance the neurology of pain. So for those of us, and I use these myself, um, they're, they're not affiliate links, but they are a sort of a third-party thing. Um, leading pain researchers have created some really fantastic uh, uh, products and books and so on that go to the, that use this information to... Uh, to help um, re- reset, if you like, uh, put it this way, the, my, the neurology of my elbow uh, and the relationship between my elbow, my nervous system my, and my brain was altered by my experience. This is not the case for everyone, but it, it can happen. The work that these guys are doing, um, it acts to act to reverse that and to sort of heal that and to retrain the brain back to its normal operating um, mode if you like so I'm going to share the links to those resources as well because yes it's true that all of these things using the, using deliberate creation to to um, take charge of your own relationship with pain it has the you know has a, it has the potential to, to soothe pain and help you to manage pain and having these extra resources may also help to make a difference depending on, you know, your own situation. So I'm definitely going to share those because I think they're brilliant and, and, uh, and obviously it's up to you whether you think they're going to be a fit. Because at the end of the day, I don't want anyone to experience pain as a barrier to joy. I think it's possible for us to have pain, have the pain experience and still experience joy. I think it's the suffering part. It's the meaning we assign to it that can be the barrier to joy. I think the pain itself, um, when we understand it better and when we, when we lose our fear of it, when we lose our, um, our, uh, you know, our sense of being out of control, when we, when we reclaim our power, even if we still have pain, then we can reclaim our joy. Okay, so but, may I ask one? Oh, no, carry on. Uh, no, no, no. If, uh, I was just going to say, I... I can't stay on the call for a great deal longer, but I can stay for another few minutes. So, um, if you if you have a question, do please ask it. I was m- merely wondering um, how to take it possibly one step further, because uh, I know uh-huh. myself uh, when certain family comes out to visit, uh, yep. and they're very focused on all of that, and you know, asking questions, questions, questions. Rather, yep. I mean, I don't. Can I give you a? Can I give you a really? Yes, can I give you a really it. simple strategy? Do it. Yes, right. Uh, here, you can say to them, "I thank you so much for your. I really appreciate the fact that you love and care about me. And right now, my health is going to be much, much better if I don't talk about it." <gasps> thank you. See, these are the things yep. that I want. These are things. Yeah. 
brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Because um, you're, yes, thank you for yeah. raising that because very often it's dealing with. Absolutely. Oh my gosh! Uh, in fact, this is actually quite funny. When my, when that thing on my back uh, came up, I did not tell my mum. I did not tell yeah. my mum because I didn't. I just didn't see the point of having the conversation until I knew what was going on. Um, because I know that her default, her default thing would be to worry about me, even though she knows that I don't love it when she does that, um, and she tries not to. But it's such a habit for her. She's in her eighties, bless her, and for her, worrying about her children is something that's been a very, very long-standing habit. So I choose yeah, not to yeah. tell until after I know what's going on. Um, okay. But yes, it's totally okay for you to say to them, "It's better for my health if I don't talk about it now." You know, you can tell them that you appreciate it. Um, and if they insist, you can say to them, I, I, I'm genuinely not talking about this right now. There is nothing, there is no drama to, to tell. I'm walking away now. And you change the subject, you know, really get proactive. This comes under the topic of, of managing your mental hygiene, dealing with other people's, <laughs> okay. you know, okay. desire for with, drama or whatever. With, yeah, yeah, you're in charge, yeah. With family can be particularly, or some, I know. at times. I know, yeah, I know. Yeah, so. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. But your okay. pain, you know, your ability to manage your pain, you're, you have to take sovereignty over it. You can't just kind of, you may well have family members who either get offended by the fact that you don't want to talk about it with them or they think it means that there's something they should worry about. And as long as oh, you're yeah. saying to them, there is nothing to worry about. Thank you. For, I appreciate your love and concern and I am not talking about it at the moment because it's better for my health not to talk about it. You can even tell them. Sometimes people are willing to kind of take authority from a third party. You can even say, my health coach has told me that my health <gasps> is going to be better if I don't talk about it. I give you permit. You can, you can tell them I told you <laughs> if that helps. I will say that and I'll well, give them your okay. email address. If you want to talk to them. <laughs> You can talk to me. This is the moment where you can tell you're talking to an ex-union organizer. <laughs> like, tell them if they've got a problem, come and talk to me. <laughs> uh, okay, right on. I hmm, Thank you very much. I know I missed the first oh, portion of the call, but uh, incredibly informative, and I'm... Uh, uh, whoo, it has... I did want to make one comment. That yep. I know we often find that, or it's like, oh, yes, I tried that uh, when it comes to thought viruses and stuff. I tried yep. that, da 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 But it seems to me, in my experience, we don't do it long enough, and we're yes. doubting it the whole way. And we don't see anything after a few days or a week, and we're like, and... Okay, yeah. I didn't mean to do that kind of poopy raspberry thing. No, I uh, think that was very appropriate. I know exactly what you mean, and I and you're right. I mean, I think this is true of any kind of any technique that we're using where we are rewiring our brains. And in fact, it's it's worth you know kind of being quite explicit about this because I didn't mention it. Is that this is what we are doing here? Is we are rewiring our brain. We are literal change. Yes changing our, you know, we're taking charge of our brain and there are only two things that you need in order to rewire a brain. One is a sense of engagement, so it has to matter to us. Obviously in this area it does. And the other is rep repetition. We cannot simply do it once or twice and expect our brains to be rewired accordingly. So, so that sense of, uh, you know, doing it on a regular basis and being willing to stick with it I think is really important. So thank you for 
rising. I, I think it's a good point. I agree, and thank you for that because you, I had well. a number of ahas with your uh, the superpower books. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I really, I've been. I'm one who. I kept telling myself I stuck with it, and it took years, but I did um, right. change my thinking. And holy cow, just uh, uh, with some things I learned even in just your first book, it was like, holy crap, I could have done this <laughs> all a lot quicker, so much easier if I understood that. And Yeah, I, I know, right? <laughs> you're I know, it's funny. It's thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much for that, and I really appreciate that. And um. That was the exact same response I had when I started reading that material, when I started reading books about the brain and I started looking at the brain research and I was kind of going, oh my God, I want everyone to know this. Because if I had known this, there is that sense of, if only I'd known. Um, but, yeah. you know, we get the material when we're ready for it. So um, that's good. And Sandy, I'm um, so sorry, I just okay. want to see if Sandy Thank had anything much. that you wanted. Oh, you're so welcome. I just want to check in with Sandy before we hang up. Um, yeah, I mean... I don't really have a question. It's it's just more of a comment. You know, this this is a lot to process. And I guess I really, yeah. for me, the biggest thing is to pay attention more to what I'm thinking. Because, yeah. it, you know, as you were talking about that, I thought, I don't know that I get beyond I can't. Right. I can't exactly. process. Yeah. I can't work today. I can't move today yep. i can't go shopping today i can't you know i can't do anything but yep. watch netflix all day. i yeah. have i think yeah. i need to get more conscious about like what's going on underneath that i i, I think that's a really good idea and i agree with you uh there is a lot to process in this material um and so it's definitely worth um like i said the the pdf will sort of would have a concise um, set of reminders. It would be kind of like the cliff notes, if you like. So that can be a kind of ready reckoner, a ready reference. Um, and also the guided visualisation, I'm hoping that that will also kind of help to be something that you can play with on a regular basis that might start to get you some wiggle room because, yes, it's a lot to process. There's a lot of information embedded in this, a lot of ideas. And, ooh, got a really weird noise. Um, Oh, Anna, I'm so sorry. That was you. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Sorry, I had to mute you, Anna. Um, uh, so, yes, there's a lot to process, but but it begins... This is one of the reasons I keep going on and on and on about self-love. It begins by being really gentle with yourself around it and sort of going, where could I just nibble at this? Where could I get a little wiggle room? Because it's not you like you have to master it overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes sense? Oh, that help? Absolutely. Awesome. 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 Thank uh, you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the call. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you guys sort of contributing questions and, and comments and ideas. It, was, it really, really kind of helps to flesh it out. And um, as I said, you will get all of the, the stuff in 48 hours. You'll probably get an email from me in a couple of hours to sort of just to let you know. Uh, which is going out to all the registrants, which will have the link to the recording. Um, and then, uh, 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 you know, I'll let everybody know that they get the rest of it within 48 hours. And, um, yeah, you could feel free to, to let me know if you've got any further questions. 
I'm going to end the recording now. Thank you so much. Sandy, would you do me a favor and stay on the line for just two minutes? Sure. Excellent. I'll talk to you soon. All right, then. Thanks, everyone, so much. Bye. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.